take our Bibles tonight, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, we're so glad you're here tonight. And a little bit cold and inclement weather, but we're praying for good service tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 to 3. And members, as we always do, if you'll look around you, if there's someone next to you who doesn't have a Bible, specifically King James Version Bible, would you share your Bible with them? Make sure everybody has their place. And we're looking forward to what God's going to do tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be taking some good notes tonight. We're doing a, a pretty, pretty intense Bible study tonight, preaching Bible study that I pray will help us. So you, you follow that if you would, please. 1 Thessalonians 1. Are you there? Amen. All right. Verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Savior. Father, thank you for the word. We thank you for the reading of the word and for the meditation of your word. Now, Lord, for the study of it, we pray that God, you drill deep in our hearts. I pray for enablement. I pray for the fullness of spirit. God, I pray you'd feed the souls of your people. We thank you for what you'll do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, most of us, I think, here tonight are, uh, at least as I know our church family, that most of us here tonight are, are concerned about having good health. And uh, we're very careful about germs, and we're very careful about what we eat. And if you ask most leading experts, they'll tell you that there's the same recurring four or five things that we need to have to have good health. We need to eat right. We need to get an adequate amount of rest. We need to drink a lot of water. We need to have daily exercise of some amount for maybe a minimum 15 to 20 minutes there. And uh, we need to avoid substances that are toxic, uh, such as tobacco, alcohol, and drugs, which hopefully in this congregation, that's not a problem, amen? But, um, you know, we know those are essentials for good health. And just as much as there are things that are net essential for our physical health, tonight we're looking at verse 3, three essentials for, for spiritual health, three essentials that are necessary for church health that we should be concerned about. We started last Wednesday a new series that we're going through in First Thessalonians. I believe this book covers everything that's pertaining to the Christian life. I believe it covers all, all of our major doctrines that you'll find in systematic theology. And uh, we're just going to find that there's just a lot of things that we're going to feel like the Apostle Paul actually visited with us as we read these scriptures. And we're going to feel like he visited with us and spoke to these very words. And so we're looking at what we call the church triumphant because everything we see about this book of 1 Thessalonians and as we go into 2 Thessalonians is about a church that triumphs in Jesus Christ. Now I believe that there's one, one, one way God wants us to go and I think he wants us to go the triumphant way. Amen? I think he wants us to do well. And so last week we spent some time looking at 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and Acts chapter 17. Now you need to follow some things I'm going to give you tonight even though it's a review. Now notice in verse 1 we were given the names of the three, the three uh, uh, church planters that weren't, went together. Paul, of course, being the leader and the founding pastor of the church. We see Paul and Silvanus, which was another name for Silas, and Timotheus. But notice this, unto the church of the Thessalonians. It's very important for us to note that this letter is written to a local New Testament church. Now, as Baptists, we're very, uh, we're very, uh, very strong about the doctrine of the local church. Uh, we would call that in, in uh, probably from, uh, uh, from a doctrine standpoint, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And we must understand that, that as, as Baptists, that we are very, we are very much uh, strong about local church. Uh, we find, I said this last week, I'll say again, 
The word here, church, is the word ecclesia, and we find out of 117 times in the English where the word church is used, 113 of those times, it's the word ecclesia, referring to a local, visible assembly of people. Now, the word ecclesia was a term that the Lord Jesus Christ elected and used. It was something that the people back in that time, they understood. When they disseminated information, they would have a town square or meeting places, and people would assemble in those places. There would be visible bodies of people assembled there. And there someone would stand up and preside over some type of a lectern or, or at a platform. And they would announce the news and say the things they would to those people. And it's a, a word that the people could be familiar with. An assembly of people. It was in a local area. They were visible. There were people there. They interacted. And somebody stood above them and, and gave them information. Jesus chose that term to describe the local New Testament church. And so we go a little bit further beyond being a visible body and being local. We also know that a church, uh, when we talk about a church, it's made up of saved baptized individuals. And I say saved baptized because baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's, it's why we're Baptists. Baptism identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but baptism also identifies us with the doctrine of the church. And that's very important because we just you just don't look at every baptism the same. Every baptism is not the same. Baptist baptism and Protestant baptism are completely different. You have to look and discern the doctrine of that church. And before we say we're going to accept someone by transfer membership, we have to examine the doctrine the church, if it doesn't match up with Baptist doctrine or Bible doctrine, then we understand that, that, uh, that, that there, we would have to have that person scripturally baptized in our church. And so we find here that this church of the Thessalonians was a local New Testament church. It was a visible local assembly. But notice something else, and we're in the introduction. Notice Paul takes a moment and again, he's led by the Holy Spirit, and we believe in word for word, verbal plenary inspiration, word for word, the Holy Spirit leading him. The Holy Spirit gave him the words and not the thoughts. And we see it says, which is in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a true church must have authority from God, amen? It must have an authority from God. Now, the church at Thessalonica, first of all, its authority is found in the fact, it's found in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's important for us to understand church authority, okay? A church like this must be, churches reproduce other churches. A man doesn't, just doesn't go out and start a church without having an ascending authority. There must be a sending authority here. And so going all the way back to the church at Jerusalem, which Jesus founded, there has to be a sending authority. This church at Thessalonica could trace its roots back to Antioch, which could trace its roots back to Jerusalem. And so we find Paul, who was commissioned out of Antioch, starting this church at Thessalonica on his second missionary tour, and doing so, this church is found in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Proper authority begins with the reproducing church. That's where the proper DNA is. The DNA is happening there. Uh, I'll use an example. We have a man that we supported for about two years or three years. His name is Nathan Massey. Nathan Massey was sent out of Berean Baptist Church up in North Carolina where my good friend Pastor Tim Rabin's at. But Pastor Rabin sent this man out to start a church somewhere in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And uh, we got wind of it, so we supported Brother Massey for about three years. He's done a great job over there. And we just got word just this last week that Brother Massey now is in the process. They've worked on it for several months. Because of things God's been doing, they've just had explosive growth and things. That church, only three or four years old, is starting another church in another part of Phoenix. They have found a nucleus of people that they've been reaching. And they got a man that was, that was just, had a heart for him. And so they're commissioning this man out of their church. And another man that we're supporting right now, Brother Mitchell Crittenden, 
Justin, who was a, uh, was a, a graduate, graduate with Brother Justin there, I think around about four or five years ago. Um, he was sent out of uh, North Valley Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, when uh, Pastor Brent Loveless, and so that church uh, is, is started up there. He came down last night and spent some time with that church, and so the, the, a new church must have, must have uh, it finds its authority from the reproducing church. Notice something else. When we talk about a, God with, a church which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, proper authority has its foundation in sound Bible doctrine and preaching. That's important. Sound Bible doctrine and preaching. You know, when we, we talk about a church, what identifies a church, when people ask you this question, what is a Baptist church? You can tell them this. Baptist is Bible and Bible is Baptist. Let's say that together. Baptist is Bible, Bible is Baptist. Say it again together. Baptist is Bible and Bible is Baptist. Now, that's important because what distinguishes us as a Baptist church? We preach the Bible. You say, what do you do besides the Bible? We preach the Bible. Everything's found upon the Bible. We always go back to the question, what does the Bible say? Bible Baptist Church there in Cebu, in the Philippines, where, where Dr. Army Jasalva pastors, they've got big signage on the building. It says, what does the Bible say? You know, that's important for us because people need to know we preach what the Bible says. When they want to know what's the favorite topic, of the, week, the truth of the matter is, you can open the Word of God and it's all good, Amen. It's all good. It's all good there for you. You can preach on any of it. God can work to that, okay? So proper authority is, it has its foundation, sound Bible doctrine, preaching. But proper, proper, uh, proper authority is a church founded in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we said this also. Paul's writing to this church, and we must remind ourselves in Acts 17, that Paul had a specific and sound strategy that he used in starting this church. That's important for us as we're uh, praying about God using us to start churches through extension ministry and so forth. And Paul did two things I said last week. Number one, he used personal gatherings. Now, he used, took advantage of the synagogue that was there in Thessalonica. And there he got an audience, and from there he was able to get people uh, to hear the gospel, and people got saved. But through this, he used that as a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. I believe wherever he could get a group of people, he would get, get, get the gospel with them. We read of the church at Philippi. We don't read about a synagogue there, but we do read about the fact that they heard there were some women that met on the Sabbath day <coughs> there at the, at the riverside. And there at the riverside, they, they assembled and met for prayer. And so Paul and the team, they went over there to pray with them. I don't know about you, I'd feel a little awkward about three men praying with hundreds of ladies there at the river, but, but they did so. And I think Paul and, and, and the, two, the two other men, they, they just had a, the right strategy there. Actually, three other men. And they went there. And of all things, they got an audience and preached the gospel. And of all things, a woman by the name of Lydia gets saved. And it just happens to be that she's a businesswoman that's doing very well. The Bible describes her as a seller of purple from Thyatira. And uh, the Bible describes her as a woman who's heart the Lord opened. By the way, I'm glad anytime God opens somebody's heart. Amen. A woman whose heart the, the Lord opened and she got saved and she said this to Paul. Now if you've judged me faithful, you can use my house for the church. Well, praise God. God gave him the first convert. God gave him the first building. Amen. And it happened to be that lady's house and the church just started there and mushroomed out there. So the church there, Paul had, had a strategy that involved personal gatherings and the proclamation of gospel. Never discount opportunities. Uh, I, I just thank the Lord that in our church we've got various groups of people that have a, a, that are willing to open their homes up. They're very good at just hospitality, open their homes up, and we can bring gatherings of people in, and they bring their friends, and others bring their friends in, and we can get a chance to pro preach the gospel to them and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are wonderful, wonderful things there. Then we said this here. We saw that Paul, he's writing to a church, and we said save baptized believers. Now, we looked at Acts 17. This is what the Bible says about how, how the church got started. 
As he was preaching after the third Sabbath day, here's what happened. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Now, I like what it says there. Some of them believe. You know, if you stay at it long enough, people get saved. Amen? You stay at it long enough. You knock on doors long enough. You witness long enough. You stay at it long enough. People get saved. The Lord will lead people to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And then we see from that, also a great number, a great multitude of the devout Greeks. That's kind of interesting because these were Grecians very devoted to their pagan worship and whatever there. And they heard the gospel and the, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit set in and the message was compelling. And through that, the Bible says a great multitude of Greeks got saved. Well, you know what? God saves the impossible. Amen? What we think is impossible is possible with God. And God was saving people. And you got to remember, Paul was a very devout Jew and, and Jews and Greeks in that culture didn't necessarily mixed very well. I mean, there was a, just a lot of racial tensions back then. You think there's tensions today? That's nothing compared to that day. I mean, they had tensions and problems, and we'll see some of that later tonight. In spite of that, the power of the Holy Spirit was working through Paul, and I, and I can't help but believe that as Paul writes about the love of Christ constraining him, that Paul is loving on these people and staying with them and patient, and they're seeing the love of Christ work on him, and these people come to Jesus Christ as Savior. And then we see, it says, of the chief women, not a few. Now, when I look at that, I look at women who have influence women who are in pockets of society making a difference for Christ. I mean, God knew what he was doing and those initial group of people are getting saved. And then it says that these people, they believe and consorted with Paul and Silas. Now what that means is, that consortium means they joined the ranks of. They got scripturally baptized, they got saved, they got baptized, they became church members. Let's remember, the goal is that we, we lead people to Christ. I was talking to staff about this today. We see people saved, we're trying to add them to the church. Our goal is to get them into the church. We want to see them get baptized there and follow the Lord in that capacity, and that's important. Notice verse 2. Now we get down to verse 2. We go to verse 1. We see the church in formation. Now, remember, Paul is writing in verse 2. He's writing from the city of Corinth. He's not in prison now. Remember, uh, the church, the, the, the letter to the Thessalonians, this first one was not written from prison. In fact, this, if, if, if historians are correct, this is the very first letter that the apostle Paul wrote. And in verse 2 here, he's writing from Corinth where he's had some, uh, he's had some challenges. And, but I also think he's writing, I'll tell you in a minute, I think he's writing because he has some sentimental thoughts about the church. And notice what he says if you'll if you'll zone in on this. Notice he says, we give thanks to God always for you all. Now, if I just stop there, that's a message right there. Amen? We give thanks to God always for you all. Now, Paul was thankful for the ministry the Lord had established at the church of Thessalonica. Go back with me for a minute. It's AD 51. And at one year period of time, Paul has one, had one of the busiest years of his life. In fact, for you and me, it would be busy. He started the church at Philippi. He didn't stay there very long. He went to Thessalonica. The church got started there. It wasn't there very long. He went down to Berea for his safety. Couldn't stay there very long, but a work got started at Berea. Then he went down to Athens. Paul, uh, Silas, and Timotheus are still at Thessalonica. They're ministering to the people of Thessalonica, as we'll see, the brethren at Macedonia, as the Bible would say. And he starts preaching the gospel there on Mars Hill, and a work gets started there. Now he's down at Corinth. In a year's time, four churches are starting. By the way, they were all thriving churches at the time this letter is written. Paul is had a busy year. 
And of all the things going on, he's down there at Corinth. This church at Corinth is just trying to get off, get off the ground. The church at Corinth had some struggles in the early years. Uh, Paul stayed there longer than he did at any other works. But during that time there, Paul is thinking about the church at Thessalonica. He's thinking about names. He's thinking about people. He's thinking about faces. He's thinking about experiences. He's thinking about salvation decisions. He's thinking about people being discipled. He's thinking about these chief women. He's thinking about these devout Greeks. He's thinking about Jews who have gotten saved. He's thinking about some of them that believe. And the Bible says, we give thanks to God always for you. I imagine this, this church planting team of Silas and Timotheus, they join up with Paul and they're saying, don't you remember, don't you just remember the good thoughts we had, the good times we had at Thessalonica? Don't you just remember the souls that got saved? And don't you just wish we were still back there? And don't you just wish that that was there? I mean, that's their attitude. They said, we give thanks, God, always to you. They weren't saying we give thanks because we had a program. And they didn't say we give thanks because we have these buildings. And they didn't say we didn't give thanks. And by the way, we should give thanks for those things, amen? And they didn't say we, we give thanks because we had a great Baptist buffet. No, we give thanks to you. We think, give, give thanks to God always for you. They're thankful for those people. Now what compelled that? Well, if you go with me, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Would you do that, please? 2 Corinthians 11, notice verses 8 and 9. I think the driver for this is, is, a, is something very special that Silas and Timotheus did for Paul. Are you with me tonight? Amen? Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 89, here Paul talks about the fact that while he's there at Corinth, he had received an offering from the brethren of Macedonia. I believe that the brethren of Macedonia were Silas and Timotheus right when they came in, in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. And here's what it says. I robbed other churches, 2 Corinthians 11. I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. In other words, he said, I feel guilty that in these early days, I took up offerings from these new churches to help me. And, uh, but, and, and he said, I, I felt like I robbed me. He's talking to the church of Corinth. And he said in verse 9, and when I was present with you and wanted, that means he was in financial need. And I've said this many times when I preached from Acts chapter 18, that uh, they, you know, faith promised missions really had not, was just coming around at that time. And they really didn't know how much a missionary needed and those kind of things. And, and Paul ran out of money. I don't think he had much to begin with, to, to start with. And so he was out of money, and he was, remember, he was doing tent making at that time to sustain himself, and God brought, uh, brought, God brought uh, uh, that wonderful couple, Kill and Priscilla, alongside of him. And he says, when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me. He said, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I've kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. Now watch this if you're the Apostle Paul. Paul's down here in Corinth, and he's, he's lacking. He's feeling that the pinch of not having money. He doesn't have a roof over his head. He's probably staying with the kill and Priscilla. He doesn't have, he's not selling enough tents to make it go because his focus is not on tents. His focus is about the preaching of the gospel. And Silas and Timotheus came to him and they said, Paul, by the way, we, we, were, we came back and, he, they, and we find this. Timothy gives a report in 1 Thessalonians 3 because he was concerned about their faith. And Paul will say, as we'll study later on, he says, now we live because we know your faith is strong in the Lord. Well, Paul is concerned about all these things and they come to him and they give him such comfort. They say, Paul, we just want to let you know, they're doing good at Thessalonica in spite of persecution, in spite of all the uproar that happened while we're there. They're doing really good. And by the way, they took up an offering for you and here it is, Paul. What a blessing, amen. I mean, just to be there, you're, you're feeling discouraged because you're down there at Corinth all by yourself and you got to kill Priscilla with you, of course, but he's there by himself and he's trying to persuade the Jews. The Jews are not listening and he preached for a number of weeks. Nobody got saved. He was in that synagogue down there at Corinth. He's feeling the oppression of Satan all over that. 
Now here come these two brothers. They bring this offering to him. They say, hey, Paul, we just want you to know the people at Thessalonica, they love you. And they took up the special offering just to show their love for you. I mean, Paul got a shot in the arm. And then you go to Acts 18.5, and it says after they came, he was pressed in the spirit and started preaching even more. I, well, I don't think he was pressed in the spirit because he saw the two brothers. I think he was pressed in the spirit because the love that these Thessalonian believers had for him made him so thankful. And so when that was all done and the church at Corinth got started, here I see Paul and Silas and Timotheus sitting around having fellowship together. They're not talking about an A's game. They're not talking about a Warriors game. They didn't have them that time anyway. Bless God. Amen. They're not talking about the 49ers. They're not talking about the San Jose Sharks. They're not talking about politics. They're not talking about any of those things. You know what they're talking about? We give thanks always to God for you. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Are you thankful for your church? Not what your church is doing for you. What Jesus is doing through the church for you. Are you thankful just to have preaching? Are you thankful for prayer time? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think some of us, if we didn't have a church, I don't know what we'd do. He said, we give thanks to God always for you all. And I'm going to drive a little home when, when he said for you all. That included the troublemakers in the church because he had a few down there. He was thankful. But notice he prayed for them. Making mention. Circle the word mention. You know what that means? Every name. Every name. Making mention of you in our prayers. He prayed for the pastor at oversight for the flock. He prayed for the men he had trained. Then he had abruptly left. He prayed for the chief women that their influence would result in souls being saved. He prayed for the so many missions impact of the church. By the way, the reputation that church had at that time was these, these are they that have turned the world upside down. He prayed for that to continue. Amen. Amen. How do you pray for your church? And when we read through 1 Thessalonians, we see prayer is very important as a discipline and exercise of Christian life. Ian Bounds said this, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods. That's a good thought. That was written 200 years ago. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, not through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Then he went on and said this in the same book. He says, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. That is the secret of so many right there. And so now we see chapter 1, we see Paul, the church being birthed. Chapter 1, verse 2, we see him giving thanks and praying for the church. Now we go to the crux of our passage tonight. He says something that's very important. Remembering without ceasing. The term without ceasing means incessantly, without interruption, continuously, just exactly what it means. It means without, without interruption, without interference, continuously. 
Remembering without ceasing. Listen, without ceasing. He was saying here that, that he was ingrained in his thoughts with something that he couldn't get out of his mind. You know, uh, sometimes we say something like this. We said, I will never forget this as long as I live. And Paul was saying something like this. He says, what happened down there? What God did in my life? They did more for me than I did for them. That's what he's saying through the thought. They did more for me than I did for them. And he's saying, I remember without ceasing. And he's saying there's some things that are unforgettable. You know what he's talking about here in verse 3 as we look at it tonight because we don't have a lot of time left. He's talking about three important virtues for church health. He's talking about three essential uh, uh, virtues that we must have in order to be a healthy church. He's talking about the fact that this church, though it was very young, and though this church was still, and may I say this in the right way, was emerging as a church. It wasn't an emergent church, but it was emerging as a church. It was growing. It was blossoming. He said, incredibly, this church had the maturity traits that are found here of a healthy church, of three things that every church needs to have. Now, there are quite a few things I could probably highlight that we need as a healthy church. But three things that Paul mentions here in verse 3 that are essential to church health. These are the barometers by which we test, is the church healthy or is it not healthy? Is the church going to go forward or is the church going to go backward? Will the church break through ceilings or will the church be stuck? Is it a healthy church? And he says here in verse 3, remembering without ceasing three things, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. And so he says here in, all, in one breath, remembering without ceasing, your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. Notice again, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, and our Savior. And he's saying this here that that he knew this church was healthy because of, the, well, of, of a few things. A spiritually healthy church uh, does these three things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. So he's saying here, he says, I find your, you have your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I think as we read verse 3, that one phrase, it, gave, it probably gave the sea... We read later on in Colossians 3.17 where Paul says, Whatsoever you do, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Look how he says, verse 3, he says they had these three virtues in our Lord Jesus Christ there. He's saying that they were doing, whatever they, what, what they were doing with these three virtues, they were doing it for the glory of God. And then he says, in the sight of God our Father. Let me say this to you tonight. A spiritually healthy church cannot fake it out with God. You can't fake it out with God. They can't fake these virtues. God sees who we are and what we're doing. A spiritually healthy church is cognizant that God is watching. And we know this watching. Paul realizing that we're not, our memories are not, are not equipped to memorize 10 different things that we've got to do off the checklist. Summarize everything we ought to do in three essentials. Our work of faith, our labor of love, and our patience of hope. He says, look at God is watching. He says, God has watched you. I've watched you from afar. I've listened to the reports, and he talks about these reports later on. I've watched you. I've listened to the reports. God is watching. And he says in the midst of all that, he says, see, he says I can't help but remember without ceasing your, 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 your uh, work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in, in, the, in the, the, our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Savior. He's saying this, God is watching. You've heard me tell the story many times, but there's a story told of a Christian school, and it was lunchtime, and 
And uh, a mother came and she brought a big bowl of apples and she put those apples out at the front of the line as the children would go and get their, get their food there. And she put a sign on the, on the apples on the bowl that says, uh, take only one, God is watching. And so the children had to read this. It was in big bowl letters and went missing. Take only one, God is watching. As they got to the end of the line, another mother had put a tray of freshly baked, right out of the oven, chocolate chip cookies. How many like, like those kind of cookies, amen? I mean, they're freshly baked, right out of the oven. They're very soft. They melt your mouth. When you touch of chocolate chip cookies, the chocolate chips, there's more chocolate chips on your hand that'll get in your mouth, amen? And so they, they put that at the end, and some smart aleck kid put a sign next to that tray of cookies that says, take all you want, God is watching the apples, all right? You know, and so when we think about that tonight, I think about this, God is watching. God is watching us to see if there's a work of faith, labor of love, and patience, hope. Let's look at these three virtues before we're done tonight. Number one, your work of faith. Now, what does he mean, the work of faith? It's putting your faith to work. See, application of faith. We know in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by, okay? We know in Hebrews 10, 38, the just shall live by, okay? What's that saying there? The moment you get saved, you're to live by faith. Now, we're gonna break it down a little bit more. What does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean, the work of faith? And he goes on by saying in Hebrews 10, 38, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now what do we mean, the work of faith? Well, first of all, I think a work of faith is an active faith. It's an active faith. Go with me to James chapter two very quickly. Faith is not a mental ascent. It's not a theory. It's not a thought. Faith is motivated action. Not a mental ascent, but a motivated action. And in James chapter 2, and I'm not going to get into it because that's a whole lesson by itself. Paul, in, verses, in chapter 2, verses 13 to, oh, let's see here, to 13 to 26, Paul brings out, if you've read your Bible, what we call faith and works. How many understand what I'm talking about here tonight? James chapter 2, faith and works, okay? He's talking about faith and works here. And he's talking about the fact that, uh, that we must demonstrate our faith through works. Now, as we have your finger there, let me give you some, some definitions so you can understand what's going on here. Look at the word faith in 1 Thessalonians 12, 3, for, uh, 1, 3 for just a minute. Keep your finger there. Now, the word for work we're going to look at two words, work for work and faith. The word for work is the word ergon. Now, we get our word ergonomics from that. But listen very carefully as you scroll into and get into the, the definition, what it means. When he talks about the work of faith, and faith basically means believing, believing with all your heart, believing with 100%, okay? Faith and belief are synonymous with one another, okay? The word for work means the main business or occupation of an individual. It's like this, if I went up to one of our laymen tonight and says, what do you do for a living? What do you do? I was with a family last night that's not saved, we're working on, and I asked the husband a little bit more. I said, tell me what you do. What, what, you know, tell me a little more about your company. What's your role? What's your job description? Or what are you supposed to be doing? You know? And so, so the word work means the main business or occupation of an individual. It has the idea of more work, not less work. It's a main vocation, not a hobby. Did you know this tonight? Faith is not a hobby. Faith is the main occupation of the Christian. 
Faith is the main work of the, of the faith. Faith is the main work we're supposed to be doing. So when you look at the work of faith, he's saying the main thing we should be doing is the exercise of faith. The main business or occupation of a Christian is the work of faith. Now what does it mean there, the work of faith? It's faith being exercised. It's faith that's engaged. It's faith being stretched. Let me use an example. It's like filling a wheelbarrow up with several hundred pounds of weights and pushing the wheelbarrow up a hill, okay? That, that's a lot of work and not letting the wheelbarrow go backwards and push you back, amen? If faith is being, faith, the work of faith is pushing a wheelbarrow up a hill. It's like lifting weights that are gonna really push your muscles and stretch your muscles and really test you. It's like doing weights that almost be, that you can't lift. It's lifting those weights. It's running a race that, that tests your endurance. It's talking about here pushing our faith to the limit. It's putting our faith to work. It's not letting it sit dormant and become, and become uh, just uh, useless. It's putting our faith to work. Now look at James chapter two when we talk about an act of faith. First of all, let's look at the doctrine he's advocating here. The, advoc- the doctrine he's advocating here is not, is not that, you, that works will save you. We know that for by grace, through, that for by grace you're saved through faith. We know that, that, that faith is what saves us. Faith alone in our Lord Jesus Christ has saves us. But when we read James chapter 2, if you're not very careful, if you don't cor- correctly interpret this, you could mi- be misled to think that good works are essential because he says faith without works is dead. In fact, look at James chapter 2 with me. And notice verse 14, because uh, sometimes if you get into debate with someone who doesn't know the word of God, they, they get hung up on this, and I want to explain this to you. Notice in James chapter 2, he says this. He says in James chapter 2, he says for verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now don't stop there. If you, if you just stop on one verse, you've incorrectly interpreted the word of God. What he's talking about here, it goes back to verse 1. The whole context here is dealing with obedience, and he's talking about the exercise of faith. He begins in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect to persons. He's talking about with respect to our faith and how we treat other people, and he's dealing there in chapter 2 with the sin problem of partiality and bias and discrimination. He's talking about having cliques and being a part of a clique there. It's being loyal to a clique instead of loyal to the body of Christ as a whole. In verse 8, James talks about the royal law of taking care of one another. And so he's dealing with these sins. In James chapter 2 verse 12, James talks about the future judgment by God's word. He says the perfect law of liberty will judge you. And so he talks about these things. So all he's saying to them as he talks about this, that it's a sin for for a Christian to be showing partiality. It's a sin for us to stay in our own little cliques. It's a sin for us to just stay in our little own place here. And uh, he's talking about the rich and the poor in that context there. And we could, we could apply it this way. If we, if we only hang out with our own ethnic group, that's wrong. If we, only, if we hang out with our own economic group, that's wrong. He's saying here, listen, the body needs to extend itself to everybody in the church and realize that we need to love one another and help one another, encourage one another, and be a blessing to one another. That's why I love our church because there's such a spirit of cooperation among our people there. There's just a love that each one has and a cooperation, a camaraderie there. But James is writing to people that were not doing that. And so he's telling them, listen, your faith, you're not showing a true faith. You must exercise your faith through action. Your actions must demonstrate itself through a love for the brethren there. So he talks about, about that there. And so he says, if you don't put your faith to work, your faith is dead. Your faith is useless. It has no, it's not doing anything for anyone. And living faith is an active serving faith there. And so he says, what does it profit you? 
What does it profit you? How good is it? If you're not putting your faith to work, how, how, what's it profiting you as far as eternity is concerned? The word of God is going to judge you that you've been disobedient to the perfect law of liberty. And he talks about, if you just defended this one point, you've, you've broken all the law. And he's just making it very clear to them how bad this sin is and not putting their faith to work. Then he uses two examples. Did you notice that? We see the doctrine, but notice the demonstration. In James chapter 2, he gives us two uh, Old Testament examples that to the believers that James wrote to was, uh, that resonated with them and they understood. Number one was Abraham. And he says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, if you would, Abraham was already a man of faith. We read over in, in Genesis 15, 6 that he, he believed in God and God imputed him unto righteousness. We find that in verse 23. It quotes there what he did when, when Abraham made his first step of faith and he believed on the Lord and God imputed to him to righteousness. We can point to that point of time. That's when Abraham got saved. But Abraham now, as we get to James 2.21, Abraham is a much older individual. When he got saved, he was, oh, probably, probably about, uh, maybe about close to 80, 85 years of age. And now we get over here, we get over here to uh, James 2.21 and it talks about the incident found in Genesis 22. Abraham's about 130 years old. He's a little bit older man, amen? And as an older man, the greatest test of his life would be, what are you going to do with your son? And the Bible describes in Genesis 22 that Isaac was his only begotten son. Now notice verse 21 here. It says, uh, verse, it says here, it talks about his faith. What was the, 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 the works that backed up his faith? It says when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Let me, let me give you a few thoughts here. What, what does it mean by that? When he offered Isaac his son upon the altar. What his work of faith was giving. His work of faith was obedience. That's the key thought there is his work of faith was obedience. He didn't withhold on God. His work of faith was, was, uh, was uh, he had faith in God's commandment, though he, he did not know how the outcome would be. Because God says, I want you to offer up your son. And God didn't tell him how it was all going to turn out. God just said, all I want to see is, what, are you going to do what I told you to do? His work of faith was obedience and, and, and trusting God. He had faith in Jehovah Jireh. You know, he knew the name Jehovah Jireh afterwards, but he told his son. He said, his son said, well, where's the lamb for the offering? He says, God will provide. Now, he said, you know, I think when he said that, it wasn't that he had a question mark in his mind about, about whether or not it was Isaac. He knew it was Isaac. God told him specifically, you got to build that altar and you got to put Isaac on there. And so he did so. Uh, he had faith in, in the previous name of God in the previous chapter, El Olam, the everlasting God. And just that name, the everlasting God, took him to a whole new, new place in his Christian life there because he understood that God was everlasting in his promise and God was everlasting in his faithfulness and God was everlasting in his forgiveness and, and just that realization at the age of 120, 125 changed Abraham's life because at that moment of time he realized that I have an everlasting God. God is never going to, God is endless and God is timeless and God is never going to wear out. And so, so, so he's just, you know, he's just overcome with these great, great thoughts about who God is there. And now he gets to this place where God says, I want you to offer up your son without much explanation there. He had faith in God. He had faith in giving his best and his all. I mean, that's the kind of faith he had. I mean, he says here that by faith, Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he'd offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. I mean, here's a man of great faith. Now, we read that and we, we relax because we, we're not asked to do something as extreme as that. But put, your, put yourself in Abraham's sandals. Would you have done that? Would you have been obedient? Would you have raised the knife over your head knowing that you're going to plunge that knife in? And yet he had faith. He had faith, as Hebrews tells, he had faith in the future resurrection because God told him, you're going to, you're going to have a seed. 
And that seed's going to multiply. It's going to be a mighty nation. And he said, I don't understand how it's going to happen. You're telling me I'm going to kill my son. Somewhere something's going to come out of it. But he had faith in the future resurrection. He had faith that God was going to raise him back up one day. And then God goes from, then, 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 then Paul goes, uh, James goes from Abraham to Rahab the harlot. He's talking about faith and works. An act of faith. Now, Rahab the harlot, you have to understand, she got saved. But she still had her old nature working her, didn't she? Did she not? I mean, she's still telling lies there in the, in the midst of all these things, right? And uh, so she still had her old nature there. The, the new nature really hadn't, you know, the, she had the new nature in her, but she just wasn't walking in the spirit, if I can say that. She was walking in the flesh. And so, but later on, you know, she could have had that, that, that old nature when, the, when she told the, the, the spies that they, she, what she believed, that she believed in God and all, that God was, uh, that God's mighty acts and what he did in the Red Sea, which was her, which was basically her confession of faith that she needed to get saved. She could have gone on after that and said, okay, thank you very much. You know, I hope you, I hope you find a safe way out of this. That's not what she did. Notice what it says about Rahab. She went a little bit further because she put herself at risk. Notice this, verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Now, now the writer James, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was painstakingly helping us to understand her work of faith. First of all, she received the messengers. She received their message. Now remember, they're Jews and they're pagans. Jericho was a strategic location. It had to be the first city to go down because of its idolatries, because of its paganism. Because of its wickedness, because it offered those babies there. It was a wicked Canaanite nation. You know, people say, well, God was so mean. You don't understand. These people would not repent. In fact, you listen to Rahab's testimony in Joshua chapter 2. Everybody inside that city knew what God did for, for Israel when he opened up the Red Sea. She's the only one in that whole city that believed what God could do. She's the only one that would confess her sin, would turn from her wicked way. And so now we have these two messengers come in, and th this could be very costly to her. And, uh, and she says, the Bible says she received the messengers. In other words, she received their message, and she took what she, uh, they, she received this to them, and she extended hospitality to them, and sending them out another way. She did not endanger them. I mean, she gave them advice and counsel. You need to go up to these hills and stay there for three days. I know our people. I know what's going on. She was exercising her faith. Listen, the work of faith is putting your faith to work. Listen tonight, listen tonight. The work of faith must be active. Is your faith active? Are you stretching it? Are you, do you have weights in the wheelbarrow? You're pushing it up the hill. Are you actively putting your faith to work? But listen, the work of faith is not only active. Would you write this down? The work of faith is also asking. It's asking. Hebrews eleven six. but without faith it is impossible to please them. Read the rest of it to me. For he that cometh to God must believe that what? He is, and a reward of them to diligently seek him. What's that talking about? Prayer. Go with me, if you would, over to, uh, to, to Matthew chapter 15. I don't think I'll finish tonight past, past the first point here, but we'll do the best we can. <clears throat> now, Matthew 15, verse 21 to 28. Circle those two verses, the seven verses. Jesus has been up in the area of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. He's on the northwest shore. You follow where I'm at? He's going to walk a couple hundred miles to the coastline where Tyre's at. Tyre's a coastal city. 
It was a major Canaanite city. Tyre, you know, if you want anything that proves the veracity, the truthfulness of the Bible, just study Tyre in history. Tyre is mentioned over and over again. God prophesied about the judgment against Tyre because he refused his message. And Tyre was an old Canaanite city. As far as we know, it had more Gentiles than Jews. It was a wicked city. But these people, the Jews, would not receive him. You read chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, the Jews would not receive him. They're fighting with him. They're fussing with him. They're just giving him a lot of pushback. So Jesus walked from Gennesaret all the way up to Tyre. There's a group of people with him. We don't know how large. We do know it's the disciples that are with him. And he goes there to the city, and I want you to underscore this just because of time. He went there only for one person. Now, we know that because we read the scriptures now, but at that point in time, nobody else knew that. He went there because there was one person. Now, this just points to the omniscience of Jesus Christ, that he knows everything. By the way, aren't you glad he knows everything tonight? Amen? And he knew there was a lady up there, as we read verse 21 and 22, that was in dire straits. This woman, every mother in this room, if you're a mother, you would understand this. When your kids are not doing well, when your kids are hurting, when your kids are, they've got what this, this, this daughter had. Nobody, nobody in this world is more overwhelmed and more filled with pity and sorrow and hurt than a mother is. Now, I'm not going to take away from the dads. I know dads are, but not like a mother because she travailed and brought that baby into this world. You mothers need to say amen to that, Amen. And Jesus went up there, and the buzz is started before he got there. By the way, that's a good thing, amen? The buzz has already started before he got there. This woman hears Jesus is in her town. Now, I don't know, we don't have any count that she read anything about it, but I'm going to tell you what I, what I believe. I'm going to conjecture. I don't think she read anything. I don't think there was anything in record. I don't think it got there. I think she heard bits and pieces. Everything she got about Jesus Christ was by hearing. Faith cometh by hearing. And somewhere along the way, the buzz is going on that Jesus of Nazareth, the great miracle worker, the rabbi of, of, of Jerusalem, has come up there, or Nazareth of the, of the Galilean area, has come up there to the city of Tyre. And notice in this passage here, and I want you to see the work of faith is asking. The Bible says in verse 22, a woman of Canaan, she's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. Jews don't mix with Gentiles. She comes to him, and she, and by the way, Gentiles didn't like that. And Gentiles were very proud people, so were Jews. And she came to him out of those same coasts, <coughs> she cried to him. Now, if you've never looked at this before this way, she's praying to him. She's crying to him. Anywhere you read about somebody crying to Jesus, they're praying to him. She cries to him, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, there's a lot of belief in his deity right there. Because she's calling him the son of David. Listen, she believed he was the king of Israel already. She knew enough. Hey, Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. She knew this is the king of Israel, the king of heaven. And she said, oh Lord. And she called, by the way, she called him Lord. The word kurios, which means everything is subject to you. And she says here, have mercy on me. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Hey, she comes to Jesus with her problem. She's perplexed. I'd be perplexed too if I had a demon-possessed child. Vexed with the devil. He's, she's possessed. She's controlled. She showed all the signs. She, was, she didn't have mental stress. She wasn't in depression. She had demons. She's foaming at the mouth. She was catatonic. 
She had all these issues going on. I mean, we don't know what happened, but virtue of fact, she was a woman of Canaan. Maybe she had all these idols in her home, and those idols became attraction point for demon possession. And listen, by the way, you go visiting. This is why you need to go visiting in homes and go sowing. You see those homes like that, you need to make your way over and over again to get rid of those idols. And let me tell you about homes I've been to in the last two years where they've had idols just recently. The family just got saved. They took down all their Catholic idols and said, we realize that's not what we worship. The Jesus we worship is the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus in heaven. And you get out there and see these, the, the, you could just go and walk in one or two of these homes, you see those idols. You ought to have a burden for those people. You want to get in there to tear those idols down. Instead of an idol, there's a table with a Bible on it. Amen? She's perplexed. Notice she's praying. Verses 22, 25, and 27, she's praying. Have mercy on me, O Lord. She says in verse 25, it doesn't get any simpler than this. Lord, help me. Verse 27, truth, Lord. This woman is praying. She's perplexed. She's penitent. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus does some interesting things. In verse 23, notice he answered not a word. Hey, God doesn't answer every time you, you pray to him. God doesn't answer our prayers every time we pray to him. He answered not a word. He wasn't ignoring her, but she thought he was, she was ignoring her, but he, he wanted to see how sincere this lady was. He already recognized that she had faith by virtue of the fact how she addressed him. She said, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, no Jew put that in her mouth. That had to come out of her heart. She didn't, she, didn't get the, she didn't get that out of the, uh, out, out, out of the Torah. Let me tell you, she got, that came from her heart. And now we get over to verse 23, she won't do it. So then she turns to his disciples and she thinks, well, you know, you're followers of Jesus Christ. You need to have something like what he has. And she says, she says help me. Can you do something? And they, and they get, they're perplexed. They're like, they're like saying, Lord, can you just send her away? Like, she's bothering us, you know. She wants us to solve this problem. And Jesus tested her. He said in verse 24, I'm, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My ministry is to, to, the, to the Jews. The Bible says she condescended. She was penitent. She condescended herself even more. She came and she worked. By the way, isn't that interesting? She had more of a worshipful heart than those people that were already saved that were there. And he says to her in verse 26, well, ma'am, I can't take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, there, there's, a, there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on there. First of all, the word dog is, was a word that they used to talk about Gentiles. Gentiles were called dogs, amen, you know? False teachers and Gentiles were called dogs. He says, I can't take the children's bread and give it to dogs. I don't give that which is good to my children to dogs. He, he's talking the children being the people of Israel. And, you know, and if you listen to that, when we read that, well, man, he's pretty, pretty, pretty derogatory to her. You know, like, you know, if I said something like that to a church member, they'd either shoot me or they'd walk out the church, amen, you know? And, but Jesus was using, you know, terminology of that day that was familiar, just saying, man, I'm a Jew, you're a Gentile, and if you really believe in me, I just have to tell you, what I have to give, I'm supposed to give to my own children. I don't give it to dogs. I don't give it to Gentiles. And, you know, look at this woman's humility. Look at what she says in verse 27. Truth, Lord. Of all people, she recognized what he said came out of his mouth was truth. Truth, Lord. She said, notice this, yet the dogs, and the word for dogs is a different word. It's a word for little puppies. Yet the dogs, Lord, she says, eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. You know what she's saying there? Hey, Lord, I'll take whatever I can get. She says, Lord, you know what? My daughter is in a mess. I'll take whatever you give me. What faith. Yes, sir. Right. What faith. You know, she's saying, hey, 
I'll be like a little puppy. If you just drop a crumb on the table, on the floor, I'll take that. Just help my daughter. You know what Jesus does? He sees this woman's persistent. This woman's most, more persistent than most Christians. She's persistent. She has made up her mind. He is here in my town. I've got an audience with him, and I'm not going to leave until I get what I'm asking for. Prayer is asking. Prayer is asking, okay? You have not because you ask not. And so she's persistent. And notice something else here. She's persuaded. She has faith. And so she says, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of, of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Notice this woman, this woman passes the test. Notice what happened here. He says, oh, woman. And he wasn't being derogatory. That's how they talk to each other. No, we don't do that today. But he says, oh, woman, great is thy faith. He praises her. She passes the test. You know what that, what that is? The work of faith is asking. That's faith. This is great as thy faith. He's, there's only two, gen, two Gentiles he said that to. Here and to that centurion. He says, great as thy faith. The work of faith is asking. But notice something else. Would you write this down? The work of faith is active. The work of faith is asking. Would you write this down? The work of faith is artistic. That means Creative. It's risk-taking. It breaks boundaries. Notice in Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter 2, it broke up a roof. You with me? Look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. We know this story. Jesus is probably in the house of Simon Peter. They're in Capernaum. We see a crowd, the crowd of people in the small little Jewish house. The Bible says they were gathered together and so much there was no room to receive them. No, not so much about the door. They broke every fire code. They went all the way to the door. In fact, the people wore the door. You had to get through the people if you wanted to get in. There was no way to get in. They were pressed. That's what the Bible says. They were like this. You ever been to an elevator like that, like this? You want to just get out of the elevator, amen? You're afraid someone's going to turn around and they're going to talk to you, except their nose will be touching your nose, amen, you know? Okay? They're pressed. We see a crowd. You know what? We see a cripple. We see a man sick of the palsy. This man's sick of the palsy. He can't carry him. He's been like this for a long time. He's emaciated in his legs. He's weak. He has no muscle. He cannot walk. And so we see this man has some friends. We call them cronies. And his friends, he has these four friends that were concerned for him. They, they fellowship with him. We don't know how he got the palsy. That doesn't really matter. It's the fact he had the palsy. And so he has four friends who they hear that Jesus is at this home. And they're getting these initial information about what's going on with, with, with this, this crippled man. So they said, you know what? Let's, let's come with a plan. Let's, take a, let's, make a, let's make a stretcher type bed. And we'll each carry a corner. And we're going to carry them. Now listen, it's one thing to hold a stretcher. It's another thing to walk a distance and carry it. You know what I'm saying? Now, it's one thing to pick up a bag of 50-pound cement. It's another thing to carry it. When I was, when I was 14, my, my father, we had our, our family, our 13 or 14, we moved from one part of East Silicon to another. And my dad had this great idea. We're going to tear up all the grass one Sunday afternoon, and we're going to pour concrete. And I said, who's we? He said, you and me, son. And I said, okay, I'm 14. And I said, I don't know really what's going on here. And he had this old, this old Chevrolet pickup, uh, what he called station wagon that he picked up all his produce and stuff in. And he had gone down to somewhere and he picked up all these sacks of, of concrete. And the, and the car was, it was just kind of, you know, down. It was a, I mean, it was, it was almost touching the ground there. And, he sa- and I said, how are we getting this out? He says, you and me. He, says, he said, what we're going to do is I'm going to prep the ground. You're going to carry all these sacks of cement and you're going to bring it in there. 
Well, you know, the first one, I took it out of the, out of the car. You know, again, you're 14. You think you're buff and all that kind of stuff there, you know. You think you're hot stuff there. You pull it out. I say, that's pretty good. I, I can hold it all right. Well, you know what? I had to walk about 150 feet from there to the backyard. By about the fifth bag, and I looked inside, there were 50 bags. I said, this is going to be a long day. Amen? Now, my dad, when he got up the next morning, he was still walking upright. When I got up, I was like this. <laughs> I was like that. I was in bad shape, man. You know, it's one thing to hold a stretcher. It's another thing to carry a stretcher. And they carried this man all the way to the house, not knowing that there'd be a crowd there that would be all the way to the end. And listen, they look at it and they're saying, uh-oh, we can't even get in. But they knew enough about, about Jewish architecture. They said, well, you know what? There's some side stairs we can go up to and we can go up on the roof. And they talked among themselves. <clears throat> And they said, well, why don't we do this? Let's, let's break up the roof and let's attach some rope on each end and carefully let it. Now, they, had not, they didn't have time to practice this, okay? Right. I, I mean, sometimes I read the story and think, man, what if one of them just moved five degrees too much and they dropped the guy? That would have been terrible, right? You know? Not only would he be sick of the palsy, he'd have broken arms and he'd be mentally, dis, you know, his head would be broken there. You know, just what a mess it would be, you know? These men were creative. They said, there's got to be a way we've got to get our friend to Jesus. We're going to be creative. So these men, they go up to the roof. And the Bible says they break up the roof. I said this the other night. Sometimes God has to break up things before he does something big. He broke the alabaster, the alabaster box, got broken before the ointment got poured. They broke up the roof before something would happen here. Listen, uh, Gideon had to break his trumpets before they got victory. Listen, the roof got broken up and they carefully lowered their friend down and they got him to Jesus and Jesus healed him. They got him to the Christ. But my thought I want to give you is found here in verse four. When they could not come uh, unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Hey, they were creative. Watch how Jesus commended them. Watch what happens here. This says in verse five, when Jesus saw what? The work of faith. They were creative in their faith. They had faith to get him to Jesus. They had faith that when they got him to Jesus, Jesus would take care of the rest. And so tonight as we close, I need to close here tonight because I can't get the rest of it tonight. What does Jesus see in our faith? Is it active? Is it asking? Is it artistic? Are we like the man that's filled up his wheelbarrow with weights and we're, we see a hill that's at a 45 degree angle and we're willing to push it all the way up the hill? Are we willing to bend down and lift some dead weights that are way much heavier than we've ever lifted before and stretch our muscles? Are we willing to run a race to stretch our endurance to see how far we can go? I mean, that's the kind of faith he's talking about. Paul said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. You know what he's talking about there? That church continued to thrive even though Paul wasn't there. And he writes about some things they needed to do, which we all need to do later on. But he commended them for their faith. And he talks about their faith even more so in an intimate way in 1 Thessalonians 3. I'm just saying tonight, we're going to, well, next week look at labor of love and the patience of hope. We'll spend a little more time on that. But tonight, I, I think it's important for us to look at when Paul, he thought about some things that were unforgettable. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, our Savior. You can't fake the work of faith. You can't fake these things. You either have it or you don't have it. 
You either exercise or not exercise you. The work of faith is active. The work of faith is asking. The work of faith is artistic. That's what we see from the Bible. How's your faith tonight? Father, this evening we are so thankful for faith. And we know that the starting point of the Christian life is faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That if thou should confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart, thou shalt, thou shalt be saved. It's faith. Maybe tonight there's someone here this evening needs to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Thank you, Lord, for this church at Thessalonica. What an exciting church. A triumphant church. We boil it down to members that Paul was praying for and thankful for. Lord, would you help us tonight? Help us that our faith is not inactive, but active. We saw the extreme of Abraham, who his, his act of faith was obedient, was giving. He had faith in God and trusting God for the outcome. He had faith in the resurrection. We see the faith of, of Rahab the harlot. Her faith was exercised through hospitality, and she did not endanger the people that she was with, and she accepted their message. Oh, Lord, there's so many applications tonight. Would you help us? And then in our heart of hearts this evening, we think about the mystery of prayer, that there's so much to, to learn and to exercise and to, and to yield to. Father, we pray we'll take a moment to just examine our faith, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine our faith. If someone here tonight is not saved, I pray that, Lord, they trust Christ as their Savior. They'd realize that without faith alone in Jesus Christ, they, they're not going to heaven. But faith in Jesus Christ can get them into heaven. And then tonight, Lord, we pray that you'll stir up our hearts in faith to love you and to serve you, to have this kind of faith. Let these believers of Thessalonica, would you stir our hearts, Lord, to be active, asking, and artistic. Father, we pray for these things now, Lord, of you in Jesus' name. Let's stand. I'll give you an opportunity to meet with God at the altar tonight. We're going to have the piano play if you need to come. Let's stand tonight if you need to come this evening. If you're not sure you're saved, we invite you to Christ tonight to receive Jesus Christ, your personal Savior. How's your faith tonight? This a year, your faith will grow, your faith will stretch. There'll be more asking in faith. The things we really ask for, some of it's not even in faith. It's things we can, we can do ourselves. And faith is asking God to do what we cannot do. members who are sick and ill and trials, travels, and other things. Father, touch your bodies with your goodness, your love, your grace this evening. And then we pray tonight that as we leave, we pray that there's a fire that's been started in us that puts a great desire to just live by faith and walk by faith and trust in God and look to you for all of our needs. God, we, we are needy people tonight. And I think about the Syrophoenician woman. The Bible says she cried out to the Lord. And uh, God, what an what example for prayer. And Jesus commended her. He said, great is thy faith. And God, he said that of Gentiles, what to God that tonight as, as, as your children, that we'd have a faith like that. We would just be persistent and not letting go. 
And then, Lord, tonight we realize that in faith as we, we look at the, the, um, our soul winning and uh, winning souls to Christ, that we realize, Lord, we've got to be creative and artistic, and we've got to be like these friends. We've got to be resilient. Jesus saw their faith. And I pray that, Lord, that you'd see our faith that would honor you. Faith honors God, and God honors faith. Lord, tonight I pray you bless the families. Help every family to have a sweet time together before they put their heads down tonight. And I pray you'd bless conversations this evening. Help our young people as they get through their homework. They'd finish it well. Help those, dear Lord, whose bodies are wracked with pain, that you'd give them comfort and ease and peace in their sleep. And, Father, we pray that as we look forward to just a very, very uh, busy weekend, we pray for it to be a, a fruitful weekend, Lord, with the word of God being preached and ministering to lives and being a blessing to people. Father, we pray for servant hearts. We pray for uh, uh, humility that we need to have in just serving and honoring you in the way we should. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing tonight. Give protection and safety, we ask in Jesus' name.